WMNF Tampa. We have a pre-recorded show for you today, and there's also an update to one of these stories. So we'll bring you that update after we hear from Andrew Warren. Welcome to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we are broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Later on this hour, we're going to speak with a biologist and with a lawyer. They're warning against a dredging project in Puerto Rico that will harm coral reefs. But first up, we're going to look at a range of issues here in Florida, including an attempt at consolidating judicial circuits. And joining me by Zoom right now is our guest, Andrew Warren. He was twice elected to be the state attorney for Hillsborough County, but he was suspended by Governor Ron DeSantis. Welcome back to Tuesday Cafe, Andrew. Sean, thanks so much for having me back. I'm really glad you could join us to talk about this uh, this interesting issue. So Republicans in Florida, some of them are trying to consolidate a few of the judicial circuits. Right now there are 20. They say that these new districts would be more efficient. Do you agree with that? I don't at all. I mean, look, this is a naked power grab uh, by Tallahassee and the Republican leadership there. And this is great if you're one of the 22 people in that inner circle in Tallahassee, but it's really bad if you're one of the 22 million Floridians who relies on the criminal justice system for uh, all different parts of our society. And part of these meetings have been in public, but in November, they're going to have some closed door meetings. Um, Why are you concerned about that? Well, Florida has a sunshine law in which uh, the government is supposed to operate out in the public transparently so that everybody can see what they're doing. Uh, The governor has shown that he really doesn't care about uh, the Sunshine Law. He doesn't care about a lot of laws, frankly, but he just recently got in trouble uh, for violating Sunshine Law with regard to COVID, and now they're doing it again. They're holding these meetings in private so that the public doesn't have a chance to see and hear how the future of the criminal justice system in the state of Florida is going to be uh, twisted and turned and ultimately gerrymandered uh, for political reasons. So what might that look like if if there is this redistricting that happens with these judicial circuits? Where, again, we're not talking about um, the congressional redistricting or other things that people might be familiar with. It happens kind of routinely every 10 years or so. Uh, but this is judicial circuits being kind of reapportioned. What might that look like and why would that be an issue? Well, let's start with what these circuits represent. This is access for people in the community to their court system. And so whether you've been the victim of a crime, whether you've been the victim of uh, a scam, whether you need to go to court to make sure that, you know, you have your rights as a tenant, to make sure you have your rights as a citizen, you rely on access to the courthouse. And right now we have 20 circuits in Florida. They are set up so that people can travel relatively easily uh, to the different courts in that circuit where they elect the state attorney and the public defender and judges who work in those circuits. And it's worked really well. And if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But the governor and the speaker are intent on changing those circuits for political reasons. And the impact of that is not only that it takes power away from the people in the communities power over who they can elect, who they who gets to serve as judges, it's going to make it harder for people to get access into the courthouse. It's going to create massive gridlock in the system. You're going to have victims having to travel longer distances to show up in court and have victims waiting longer and longer to get the justice that they deserve. There's frankly no reason to do it other than partisan politics. But unfortunately, that is what Tallahassee does these days. They don't care about what's best for Floridians. They care about what's best for them. 
You just called it partisan earlier in the interview. You said it was a naked power grab. Now, I think that it stands to reason people can really understand how redistricting for congressional districts or for state legislative seats or something, how that might be partisan. So how is it that something as neutral, perhaps, as seemingly neutral at least, as judicial circuits, how can that be something that could benefit one party over another? Well, if the state redraws those circuits to favor certain political parties and certain political candidates, then that is partisan gerrymandering. And you don't have to take my word for it. Take the word of the Republican state attorney down in South Florida, Monroe County in the Keys, who said, look, everybody knows what this is about. This is about making sure that Andrew Warren can't win re-election in Hillsborough County. This is about making sure that a Democrat can't win election in Hillsborough County. This is about making sure that Republicans can win elections in Hillsborough County and in the Orlando area. That's what it is. And again, that's coming from members of the governor's own party who are saying, don't do this. We know what you're doing. It's bad for Floridians. It may help your floundering presidential campaign, but this is not what Florida wants, not what Florida needs, and it's bad for the citizens. Our guest is Andrew Warren. He was twice elected to be state attorney for Hillsborough County, but he has since been suspended by Governor Ron DeSantis. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. So let's talk specifically here about Hillsborough and the possibility of it being redistricted. So if Hillsborough's judicial circuit, which right now just maybe almost unique among Florida counties is its own state attorney's circuit. If that's redistricted, how would that impact your decision about whether to run again for state attorney? Well, again, just to go back a second, I mean, there are a few single county circuits in the state and they're based on the size. And Hillsborough County is a large county, you know, 1.5 million people. And so we want to make sure that the county is set up and the circuit is set up in a way that people have access to the courts and they have they have control over the people that they elect and they put into office. Clearly, the governor is hostile to that idea that the people get to decide who serves an elected office. But the way this could happen is they could change Hillsborough County. They could combine it with other counties. Look, we don't know what's going to happen, but I can tell you this. The power, the powers that be in, in Tallahassee know exactly what they're going to do. And if you think that this is some, you know, open process where they're going to take input from the people and then make a decision that's best for Floridians, you've been living under a rock in this state. I mean, the governor and the speaker know exactly what they're going to do. They're going through a dog and pony show right now to make it look like they're getting input and figuring it out. And they're going to make a decision based on what they think is best for them politically. Based on reporting from the Tampa Bay Times, they're saying that some Republicans are saying that Governor DeSantis and the Republican sheriffs in Hillsborough County and Polk County oppose changing the boundaries of the Hillsborough circuit. Do you find that likely that they're going to change a lot of things in in Florida, but just leave Hillsborough kind of the way it is? I, I can't speculate about what they're doing. Again, they're having these meetings behind closed doors, and you'd have to go into the governor's mind to know exactly how he's going to try to mess with what's working in Florida. But it's understandable that law enforcement is opposed to this. I mean, we have a really good balance right now between state attorneys and judges and law enforcement. By consolidating circuits, you're minimizing the role of law enforcement, making them report to a single state attorney over multiple counties. You're Again, you're spreading the justice system too thin that denies access to a lot of people. That's why law enforcement is opposed to this. That's why every single elected state attorney in the state 
is opposed to it. The only person who is not opposed to it is the illegally appointed state attorney here in Hillsborough County who just says, well, whatever the governor wants, that's where I stand on it. That's not what's representing the best interests of people in Hillsborough or the people of Florida. Let's go back on something you just said, the illegally appointed state attorney in in Hillsborough County. Now, um, you know, from a functioning standpoint, she is the state attorney. She's she's acting like that. She her the employees there report to her and so forth. Why do you say illegally appointed? Well, you hit the nail on head. She's acting like the state attorney. I mean, she's not the duly elected state attorney. She's not even a lawfully appointed state attorney. And that's not my opinion. That's a fact. A federal court found very clearly that Governor DeSantis broke state and federal law in suspending me. And the governor's power to appoint somebody is conditioned on his ability to lawfully suspend someone. He didn't lawfully suspend me, which means he doesn't have the power to lawfully appoint someone in my place. And again, that's not just my opinion. I mean, you have legal scholars from across the state of Florida, a former attorney general, a former Supreme Court justice saying this appointment is illegal. It violates the Florida Constitution. I mean, I'm glad that things are kind of working, you know, that the system didn't just grind to a halt. But you have someone in there who's not elected, not accountable to the people, not appointed lawfully. That's not how democracy works. That is really bad for the people of Hillsborough County. And it's a bad omen for the state. So in order to kind of challenge what had happened to you, you went to court and the court found that a lot of the things you're saying are true, but that the judge didn't have any way to give you that position back. But are there any other legal uh, avenues open to you? Are there any court cases that are still going on? Where does all that stand? Yeah, so and let's be clear, it's not that the judge said a lot of what I'm saying is correct. The judge said everything I said was correct as a matter of law. And the judge's findings, again, were crystal clear. The governor broke state and federal law in suspending me. The suspension was illegal and unconstitutional. And that I had done my job and I had done it well, exactly in the way that I would told voters that I would. Now, the judge said, as a federal judge, I don't think I have the jurisdiction to reinstate you. And that issue is now on appeal to the higher federal court. And we're patiently awaiting the decision from the federal court. But keep in mind, Sean, I mean, this has never been about just me and my position as state attorney. This is not just about the position of the state attorney in Hillsborough County. This is about our democracy. This is about who gets to decide who's in office. This is about belief in the rule of law. We have a governor who talks about the rule of law, talks about the Constitution. But when he was told by a federal judge that he had broken the law, the governor's reaction was, oh, well, so what? This works for me politically. That is a terrible thing for our state. And another reaction that the governor had, uh, whether it was specific to what happened in the courts or not, was that he also suspended Monique Worrell from the Orange Osceola Ninth Circuit, the state attorney there. Uh, What are your thoughts about that suspension? I mean, that appears to be another politically motivated stunt. You know, the governor suspended me so that he had this fake talking point in his stump speech, and he suspended State Attorney Worrell when his, you know, presidential campaign was crashing for like the third or fourth or fifth time. Um, apparently, that's what he felt like he needed to do so that he can move up from fifth to fourth in the New Hampshire primary. But State Attorney Worrell has filed suit, and we'll have to see what the court says. I and mean, again, on its face, it appears to be illegal and unconstitutional, but that's what we have courts for. And that's why I go back to, in my case again, don't take my word for it. Just read the, read the opinion, read what the judge said, that this was an unconstitutional political stunt pulled by the governor to promote his own uh, 
promote his own political brand. Our guest is Andrew Warren. He was twice elected to be state attorney for Hillsborough County, but he is suspended by Governor Ron DeSantis. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. You sent out this tweet maybe a week ago or a few days ago that the office staff from acting Hillsborough State Attorney Lopez, that they've contributed to her campaign and that you think that there's an ethical concern with that. Lay all that out for us. Yeah, so it's really unfortunate. Um, you know, the the illegally appointed acting state attorney has announced that she's running for state attorney, which, of course, she's entitled to do. And she's raising money for her campaign, which, of course, she's entitled to do. And her disclosures came out and she's taking campaign contributions from people in the office. Now, that is problematic. You know, when you have the power to fire somebody, to accept contributions from them is coercive and unethical. I mean, even if people want to voluntarily, and I use that word in air quotes, you know, if they really want to contribute, there becomes this coercive, uh, you know, factor in it where, okay, well, the person next to me contributed. Now I feel like I have to, otherwise they're going to get special treatment in the office. Look, when I, when I was state attorney, I said from the beginning, I'm never going to accept contributions from anyone in the office. That goes back to my time as a federal prosecutor. You couldn't even accept, you know, lunch from someone who you had supervisory authority over. And so the idea that you're going to bring pay to play politics into our criminal justice system in our office is, is frankly just a desperate move by someone who doesn't care about what's going on in the community, but is only there to make sure that she's doing what's best for her. That's a really bad thing for the state attorney's office and for Hillsborough. You filed paperwork, elections paperwork. So what does that mean? Does that mean that you're for sure going to run? And if you might run, what are some of your options? Yeah, I mean, the paperwork that we fired is filed, excuse me, is ministerial. I mean, this is just what candidates have to do as they're making a decision. Um, I've said from the beginning, my focus has been on being back to the job that I was elected to serve twice. You know, there's still over a year left in my term, and we've had this court case going on for over a year now. So for over a year, the people of Hillsborough County have been deprived of the state attorney that they elected that they chose. The state attorney who frankly helped crime come down more than 30% in five years. The state attorney who followed through on the promises that he made as a candidate to invest in safety, to focus on all these different things that our community wanted from rehabilitation and mental health care and you know conviction review unit and stopping the criminalization of poverty. That's what this is about. So the filing the paperwork, look, I have to wait and see what's going on with a court case to see what's going on with redistricting and make the decision about what's best for the state attorney's office in the state of Florida. But right now, my focus has been where it always has been over the last year plus, which is on defending democracy and the rule of law and making sure that elections still have meaning in the state of Florida, even though Ron DeSantis is the governor. Our guest is Andrew Warren. He was twice elected to be state attorney in Hillsborough County, but he was suspended by Governor Ron DeSantis. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canaan. We're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Uh, David writes in thanking us for having this guest, for having Andrew Warren on the show. And uh, David writes, I'm so tired of DeSantis and his vindictive streak. I'm especially angry about how he has ruined New College I think there should be a big scandal to bring DeSantis down. And um, David is asking if you could speak about Ron DeSantis's wife's influence on the governor. Is that something you can talk about? 
I, I can't. I mean, I don't know the intricacies of their relationship. And, you know, I, I, I know what I read. But, you know, it, it, David makes a really good point about what's happening. And it's not just new college, right? You know, it used to be that Republicans and Democrats, people disagreed about the best way to effectuate goals that we agreed upon. How can we make Florida better? How can we make our economy stronger, our healthcare system better, our schools better? Now, this the governor has taken us down this path of, you know, these cultural war issues about fighting about woke poetry and pizza ovens in New York and things that really don't matter to most people. And frankly, that's probably why he's flailing in the presidential campaign because people have seen that he's not one to solve problems. He's one to create issues and just politicize everything. People are sick and tired of that. We also got a text message from Randy in Palm Harbor who says he doesn't understand how the present governor can break the law without recourse. Is there no law in place to disallow this? So um, you've kind of touched on that before in this interview and in other interviews, but how would you address Randy's question if there's no place in the law to disallow having the governor break the law without recourse? Well, Randy, it's a great question. I mean, look, there are two things. One is you have the court system. So in Florida, there have been so many examples of the governor breaking the law, violating the rights of the people who's he's supposed to protect their rights. He has passed and championed these laws that violate people's free speech, free assembly, voting rights, and the courts have struck a lot of those laws down and said, Governor, you can't do that. It's unconstitutional. The other part of this, though, is we, the people, have to make sure that we are electing leaders who, with every fiber of their being, believe in the law. Not people who are willing to violate the spirit of the law or the letter of the law when it you know, helps them politically, but people who are actually willing to do everything they can to follow the law. When they put their hands on the Bible and swear that they're going to uphold the laws of Florida and the United States, we should take that oath seriously. Unfortunately, the governor didn't take his seriously, and a lot of people in Florida really don't seem to mind, but now that's changing as these abuses of power are coming more to light. You know, there's been a lot of uh, talk in recent elections about election integrity. There's a group of people maybe um, throughout the country who are, are saying that the elections, they're, drawing, they're trying to draw attention to the fact that they think that elections officials aren't being honest and there's even threats against elections officials. Is there a way to guard against this kind of disinformation and also to kind of protect the integrity of our election system? Yeah, Sean, it's a great question. It all starts at the top. And it starts with having a governor who is going to speak the truth about our elections. And Governor DeSantis did at one point speak the truth. After the 2020 election, the governor said that Florida had a completely safe and secure election, which we did. There was no evidence of wrongdoing here. The crazy conspiracy theories that said there were were shot down by the courts. You know, there were just no substantiation whatsoever. They were just crazy lies that, you know, were generated out on the internet that had no basis whatsoever. But then the governor did a 180 and said, you know what? Actually, because Trump and his followers think that there are problems with elections, so let me say that there are problems with the election, so let's start this election police force to crack down on what the six cases of where there was voting fraud out of 10 million votes cast. I mean, you're more likely to be struck by lightning twice than to have voter fraud in the state of Florida. But the governor has sent mixed messages on it, and that leads to a lot of the disinformation that people have and the distrust in one of the most fundamental aspects of our government, the fact that the people vote 
and the winner of the election gets to serve in office. We have another email coming in. This one is from Gainesville. They say it's from your hometown. And this person says that they're wishing that you would run again for political office, maybe governor of Florida. So um, putting you on the spot, is that something that you might do one day? I mean, look, I'm trying to figure out what's happening next week and next month. And you're asking me about what's happening in 2026 or beyond. It's, uh, it's really high praise when you have people who know what you stand for and say, we, we believe in your leadership. We trust your vision. We want you to run for higher office. But it goes back to what I said earlier in the, in the interview, Sean. I mean, my focus is on what happened to me and what's happening to the voters of Hillsborough County and how people across the state of Florida and making sure that our democracy and our elections still have meaning here. I want to remind people that our guest is Andrew Warren. He was elected state attorney twice for Hillsborough County, but was suspended by Governor Ron DeSantis. And this is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're broadcasting from WMNF. We got a text message that came in that is asking, I'm not sure if this is something that is necessarily in your wheelhouse, but they're asking about uh, the recent success of Republicans in local Hillsborough County elections. They won some seats on uh, Hillsborough County Commission recently. This person is asking whether that's attributable to, to the recent growth in West Hillsborough County, like Town and Country and West Chase. Any thoughts on that? Yes. I mean, look, democracy is not a spectator sport. You have to show up. And in 2022, uh, Republicans showed up and they were you know, motivated by a governor who had been doing some good things here. They were motivated against you know, the, their opposition to President Biden. And when people show up and they vote, those elections have consequences. And, and so here you have a situation where Republicans turned out, Democrats didn't, they won some seats. And just like you had the opposite back in 2018, where Democrats turned out in mass and they won seats. So, you know, I think there's a healthy balance to that. It's part of the pendulum of our politics. It swings back and forth. But what we have to make sure is that we're having that pendulum swing within the arena of reasonableness, people who care about public service, not about self-promotion, people who care about the rule of law, people who care about solving problems for our communities. And once we're within that arena of actually making things better for the people who live in our community and state and country, then the back and forth of the politics is probably a healthy thing for our republic. Since we're talking about some of the um, issues about turnout, voter turnout, uh, typically 2024, you might expect to be a high turnout for Democrats in Florida because of the presidential election. There's two ballot measures in Florida or there, there's likely to be or possibly will be two ballot measures that might also enhance that turnover. Do you have any thoughts? Do you want to give any comments about either the recreational marijuana initiative or about the access to abortion initiatives that might be on the ballot in 2024? Let people vote. That's my take on it. Let people vote. I mean, we can have a hour long conversation about the pros and cons of that. You know, in terms of the marijuana, I think I see it from a slightly different perspective than a lot of people because I see it from the problems it poses in the criminal justice system and the violent crime that the illegal marijuana trade generates. In terms of the uh, pro choice amendment, I mean, I'm pro choice. I'm a Democrat. I, I was suspended for speaking out and my beliefs for being pro choice. But I believe that the Constitution is set up so that if you have these issues that the people feel like deserve constitutional protection, there's a process that they can vote on it. Unfortunately, the leadership in Tallahassee just doesn't believe in that sort of democracy. 
Amendment 4 was passed in 2018. That was the constitutional amendment to restore the right to vote to returning citizens. It was passed overwhelmingly by Republicans and Democrats. And then the governor and his and his cohorts in Tallahassee totally undermined the law. Now you have the attorney general who is in the pocket of the governor, not representing the people of Florida, who's saying she's going to oppose this amendment being put on the ballot. Why why is the leadership in Tallahassee afraid of democracy working? Why are they afraid of letting the people vote on these issues? It just doesn't make sense to me. Besides, they're doing what they think is best for them, not what's best for the people of Florida. Our guest is Andrew Warren. He was twice elected to the state attorney for Hillsborough County, but was suspended by Governor Ron DeSantis. And this is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. And we have time for probably a couple more questions. So expanding to some national politics here, do you happen to have any thoughts about the movement to create term limits for U.S. Supreme Court justices? I, I do. I'm, I'm glad you asked, Sean. You know, I Public support of the Supreme Court is at an all-time low or a historic low. Um, and I think term limits are a good way to bring some accountability back from the court to the people. Um, this is such an important branch of our government, obviously, and it's the third branch. And it, it used to be that justices served for about 18 to 20 years. Now they're serving for 35 to 40 years. They're losing touch with the people. They're losing touch with what's going on in our communities. And so term limits is a way that you can make sure that one, people, the justices remain accountable to the people. They don't stay on there for too long. And you remove or at least minimize all the partisan fighting that goes on with every single uh, nomination. Because right now, you never know when you're going to have a, an opening on the Supreme Court. And when it happens, the parties go crazy and they fight and become super divisive. Let's get back to the days where whoever was in power nominated someone who was super qualified to be on the Supreme Court. And if they're qualified, then they're put on the court. But the term limits smooths out that process. It means that you have regular turnover with people on the court, which takes the politics out of it. And then finally, we get this question from Bubba, who asks, what are Andrew's thoughts about the chaos in the U.S. House? I think that it's an indication that the GOP has lost its way and no longer knows how to govern. It's embarrassing on a worldwide scale. And that's what Bubba is saying about the search for a Republican Speaker of the House. Look, this goes back to something I said before, that you have to have people in the office whose sole motivation is serving the public whose sole motivation is about solving problems to help more people achieve the American dream. And right now, in so many levels of government, and we're seeing it, you know, we're seeing it so readily in the House, you have people who feel like they are there to promote their own political brand. They feel like they are there to give a voice to the most extreme extreme parts of our society. That's not how our country has functioned for 250 years. That's not what made us the beacon of hope and freedom throughout the world. We have to get back to serving the people and move away from this hyper-partisan political environment we see in just about every aspect of our society. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us on Tuesday Cafe, Andrew. Thanks so much. I look forward to being back. Yeah, I'm really glad you could come on. Andrew Warren is the suspended state attorney in Hillsborough County, twice elected to be the state attorney in Hillsborough. Since this interview aired, there's been an update. WMNF's Chris Young reports there was an overwhelming opposition to consolidation. The committee ended up meeting in public and recommended against shrinking the number of judicial circuits. Speaker of the House Paul Renner introduced the proposal in June. He said the consolidation would lead to, quote, greater efficiency in the judicial process. But many members of this committee disagree, 
including Lee County Circuit Judge Margaret Steinbeck. I'm hard-pressed to see how consolidation would meaningfully impact clearance rates wherever they are a problem. A clearance rate is an indicator of whether a court is keeping up with its incoming caseload. In Hillsborough County, there's been below-average historical clearance rates for some cases. However, a report discussed in this meeting revealed that most recent numbers are trending upwards or are consistent with the rest of the state. Broward County Judge Robert Lee spoke about the findings. I know that judges in Hillsborough County uh, recognize they have a tremendous caseload, but just to wrap it back up, they just certainly don't feel that uh, consolidation will assist with that uh, one way or the other. Critics of the consolidation, including State Representative Michelle Rayner, say it's a move by the governor to ensure Democratic prosecutors aren't elected. These meetings were set to be private, but were opened to the public after outcry. The committee will make a recommendation on the consolidation in December. For WMNF News, I'm Chris Young. And now we turn to our next topic. We look at the health of coral reefs, specifically in Puerto Rico, and how a dredging project there could harm corals. And we're joined by two guests. They are Rachel Silverstein, the executive director and waterkeeper of Miami Waterkeeper, and Stetson University College of Law professor Jacqueline Lopez. She's the director of Stetson's Jacobs Public Interest Law Clinic for Democracy and the Environment. I want to welcome you both to Tuesday Cafe. Thanks for having us. Thank you very much. And we'll get to Puerto Rico and the corals there and the dredging project that's planned there in just a moment. But let's talk about your organizations. First of all, Rachel, can you tell us what is Miami Waterkeeper? Absolutely. Miami Waterkeeper is a nonprofit working in Miami-Dade and Broward County. Um, And we work to protect the water, the environment, and the community and to make us the most resilient city in the world. Um, and we have spent a lot of time working on coral reefs because my background um, is in coral reef ecology. Thanks. And Jacqueline, what is this Jacobs Public Interest Law Clinic for Democracy and the Environment? Is this a new entity at Stetson Law? Yeah, that's right. So the Jacobs Law Clinic is a public interest law clinic, and we take on clients in the space of the environment and democracy. So we provide the work pro bono, and we use law students at the university who have an interest in this area of law to give them access to developing these skills while they're still in law school, while also providing this public benefit for our communities. And so in this case, we took on helping out prepare the amicus briefing for the lawsuit in support of the corals in Puerto Rico. Yeah, and that's what we'll be talking about for the next half hour or so are these these corals in Puerto Rico and how you're telling us that this dredging project may potentially injure these corals and coral reefs in Puerto Rico. And we uh, there's a lot of background on this because of some dredging projects in Florida. And so we're going to get to all of that this hour. So first, maybe Rachel could give us some background about what is being proposed in Puerto Rico. Where would the dredging be and what's that environment like? Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, the story actually, funnily enough, starts in Miami. Um, and our, our background in history on the potential risks of dredging around coral reefs starts in Miami. And I just want to make sure you can hear me okay as well. Sounds great. Um, I know I've got some ocean background noise behind me. So we'll take that. Actually, and you're joining us from the, at the ocean. Dominican Republic, um, I understand. Yes, I, I am. I'm uh, at a conference here. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, no, thanks for having us. So in Miami from 2013 to 2015, uh, the Port of Miami deepened and widened its shipping channel. And that was to let in these supersized post-Panamax ships 
but the shipping channel is uh, very shallow and it goes both inside of Biscayne Bay and in the interior of of Miami um, and also out offshore on the coral reef. And it actually crosses the coral reef that runs um, north to south along Florida's coast. Um, And when they were doing that project, they were only supposed to harm some corals in the actual expansion area of the channel where they were literally deleting some of the reef. And what ended up happening is that they illegally dumped sediment over what is estimated now we know to be at least 278 acres of coral reef right off of Miami Beach um, that is killed that has never been fixed um, and was not supposed to be harmed in this project. Um, So we learned a lot of lessons going through um, that project and we filed a lawsuit against the Army Corps of Engineers for Endangered Species Act violations. We got some of the corals repaired, but we're now working really to get all of the likely millions of corals that were killed in that 278-acre area in Miami. So as we're working on this project, um, it came to light that the Center for Biological Diversity was challenging a similar dredging project that was occurring in San Juan Harbor. Um, And we've been lucky enough to work with Jackie and her team on participating and helping bring some of the lessons learned from this disastrous outcome that happened in Miami to San Juan Harbor. And what we know, for example, just one example, that they didn't look at what happened in Port Miami um, when they were considering potential impacts for San Juan Harbor. They just said, oh, it's a different situation, so we don't need to even look at it. Um, And so they basically ignored all of the things that went wrong and are repeating the same mistakes. And we'll talk about some of those things that you think might be repeating mistakes and why it would be worth at least protecting the corals or monitoring the corals and and possibly even stopping this dredging project as we go through this interview. So most of our listeners probably have not been to the port of San Juan. What does all that look like? What's the geography around there? What's the water like? What's inside the water? And what are the people like around that area? Jackie, you want to jump in or... Sure. So the port is on the north side of the island and it's near the largest city in Puerto Rico. So it's a pretty urban industrialized area. Um, The majority of the people that live in the area, of course, identify as Hispanic and particularly in the area most adjacent to the dredge project. It's something like 99% according to census data. Even though it's the most industrialized space on the very small island, it's still teeming with biodiversity. So specifically the coral that we're concerned about here, there are seven different species of coral that are adjacent to and nearby and actually have federally designated critical habitat very close to both the dredge area as well as the area where the sediment, the material that gets dredged up would be transported away from the channel. And so all of that is in and among and around coral and their habitat. So it's a really, um, it's a vibrant, vibrant place. And um, like many other places that have a lot of biodiversity, everything is interconnected. And so we want to be very careful when we're disturbing one aspect of the environment, particularly the marine environment and coral and coral reef systems, because we know that they support so many other species and are so important for the near shore, um, the the livelihood of the people that live there, the aesthetic value, and then the intrinsic inherent value of just having life that is undisturbed by human activity. 
That's Jacqueline Lopez, a Stetson University College of Law professor and the director of Stetson's Jacobs Law Clinic. We also are hearing from Rachel Silverstein, a Ph.D., the executive director and waterkeeper of Miami Waterkeeper. And this is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're talking about a proposed dredging project in Puerto Rico that they say will harm corals there. So if this port is dredged, and the, the reason, as you said earlier, is to allow larger ships to come through, and some of those ships... It would allow large tankers that fuel two power plants to eventually switch from diesel to liquefied natural gas. From reading your amicus brief, it sounds like you have a lot of issues with that. But what are some of the issues of allowing these ships to come in to fuel these power plants switching to LNG? The amicus briefing, which is just a Latin way of saying friend of the court briefing, was done in support of an appeal to the D.C. Circuit. So there's already a lawsuit moving forward that um, has Center for Biological Diversity, Correlations, and a local group, El Puente de Williamsburg. The briefing that we brought was in conjunction with Vermont Law School representing local communities that are making arguments that they are suffering an environmental injustice as a result of the dredge project. And their arguments are that the Army Corps wants to expand this channel arguably to improve traffic conditions. But the other benefit would be allowing additional LNG or liquefied natural gas tankers to come through to fuel two power plants. And the concern with that is that it disrupts Puerto Rico's intention to move to more renewable resources. LNG, this natural gas, this fracked gas, is devastating in terms of its greenhouse gas impacts and its indirect impacts there through thereby through coral. So for example, staghorn and um, elkhorn coral, which are two of the seven species we're really concerned about, were listed by the National Marine Fishery Service, oh gosh, almost almost 20 years ago now. And they were the two species to first be listed under the Endangered Species Act due to impacts from climate change. And so by ironically, by creating this space to allow additional um, fuel tankers to come through to transition to a gas that's going to be just as bad for for greenhouse gases and just as bad for climate change and just as bad for coral. And Dr. Silverstein can describe some of the impacts coral suffer as a result, not just from the dredging and the sediment, but also from climate change. Um, And those are the concerns that, that those groups are bringing in addition to the concerns that the Jacobs Law Clinic uh, represented with its two clients with respect to the direct dredge impacts to coral. Yeah, you talked about the renewable energy goals for Puerto Rico. It's actually a law, the um, energy and climate goals, 100% renewable by 2050. That's Puerto Rico Energy Public Policy Act, which certainly uh, building new liquefied natural gas plants to, to power energy 26 or whatever it is years before that goal has to be reached is really not moving in the right direction toward making that law reality. Excuse me, let me ask uh, Dr. Silverstein, about the idea of shipping, like sulfur and nitrogen emissions, if there's more shipping, how would that impact acidification and nutrient loads, uh, which would harm corals and other marine life? Yeah, so I think, and, and that, you know, it's always important to remember, why do we need corals? Some people, they may never see corals, they may never visit a reef, um, but reefs really do affect all of us, especially folks living um, on islands, like in Puerto Rico. And coral reefs, provide homes to 25% of all marine life. 
So if we lose those corals, we lose 25% of marine life. This provides protein for millions of people every single day around the world. So it's a critical food source. Um, In addition to that, corals reduce about 95% on average of wave energy during things like storms. So as we're looking for solutions to make communities more resilient, um, we have these natural coastal barriers already in place in these areas that are next to coral reefs. So having healthy, thriving coral reefs that can protect coastlines from storm surge and erosion is absolutely vital, particularly moving forward in an area of potentially um, more intense storms from climate change. So what is really killing corals, um, the first and most important thing is climate change. That is causing increased ocean temperatures and ocean acidification, and corals cannot survive in either of those conditions. And my PhD is actually in looking at uh, the effect of high temperatures on corals and how to make them more resilient and more able to survive in high temperature conditions. And this summer, we had off the charts doesn't even describe the kind of temperatures we saw in the Florida Keys, like chart shattering um, temperatures and corals just could not survive. And so um, we lost some estimates have about 99% of the staghorn and elkhorn coral that Jackie mentioned from the Florida Keys. And that's been a species of coral that used to be the dominant coral species. It created miles and miles and miles of this really important habitat. And it's kind of shaped like um, a deer antler and it provides habitat for fish to live in and around safely. Over 98% of it had declined. That's why it was listed um, as threatened under the Endangered Species Act. Um, And now we're seeing it further wiped out as well as elkhorn coral that may now be even extinct from the Florida Keys. But those two species were the subject of a lot of outplanting and restoration efforts over the last several decades. And so some people saw decades of work, their life's work, restoring these corals one by one back out onto the reef, wiped out in a matter of one week this summer in July. Um, so we, we really are seeing this ecosystem start to collapse in the Florida Keys and in other places as well. We know that this is coming. Um, And so that's a global impact, a a very large scale issue that it's hard to feel that, you know, you can have control over as a a local community, even though, you know, we all have an impact. But then we have in conjunction with the threats that corals are facing from global climate change, these very local impacts that are totally preventable, um, like these dredging projects that are simply not using the best available science to protect reefs while they're, they're dredging and bringing in this commerce into ports they could also be making sure corals are not killed. Um, And that's really what we're asking for here is to learn the lessons, to make sure we're protecting corals where we can, given the global threats that they're facing and the, the extreme importance of corals to our communities. That's Rachel Silverstein, PhD, the executive director and waterkeeper of Miami Waterkeeper. We're also speaking with Stetson University College of Law Professor Jacqueline Lopez, the director of Stetson's Jacobs Law Clinic. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we're talking about protecting coral reefs in Puerto Rico from potentially from a, a dredging project that could be happening there. And so I wanted to ask Dr. Silverstein about what the impacts of the dredging are on coral reefs. For example, how far away from 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 dredging uh, are corals impacted and what types of impacts does dredging have? I was trying to drown out the wave noise while you were talking. Um, So there's a couple of impacts that can come from dredging. Um, When you're actually expanding the shipping channel, they are, you know, deleting areas of reef and that is easier to to quantify and predict. So they can actually move some corals out of that area and, and do restoration to make up for those impacts. 
Um, but what is is harder to do and what was not predicted is that this the dredging released all of this very fine sediment, almost like concrete powder. And that spread out over the reef and buried the habitat and the corals that were there. Um, so corals need exposed rock to attach to as um, tiny microscopic baby corals called coral larvae. Um, they find the reef exposed rock, they attach to it, they settle, and then they spend their whole lives there. So they can't get out of the way um, of sediment or sand that's that's being dumped on them. Um, and then we had this you know year and a half or more of everyday sediment being dropped on top of these corals and they were slowly buried over time but not only the corals and the the millions of corals that were likely killed were buried but also all of that exposed rock that corals need to tell um, other corals hey this is a reef you can attach here and we can keep growing Um, and so that reef area is designated critical habitat um, under the endangered species act because it's so important to protect and to keep as exposed rock for corals to continue to to thrive. Um, So both the corals were killed and their habitat was destroyed by being buried in dredging sediment. That is also very hard to fix. You can't really get in and remove the dredging sediment easily. You can't get in and vacuum up an area that large. Um, So it takes a long time for the reef to recover. And it does another thing too, which is that all of the nooks and crannies on the reef provide habitat for creatures and critters. And those creatures and critters use those little spaces on the reef to hide and to make homes. And when it's totally buried in sediment, it went from um, being a very thriving reef to being basically a moonscape. So when I went diving there next to the dredging, there was so much sediment in the water, you could barely see your hand in front of your face. You could feel the vibrations of the dredge ship. And I initially got in the water and thought that I was in the wrong place, like that this must be a sandbar. But then I noticed that there were little tops of the sea fans and sea whips sticking out from the sand. And those, by definition, have to be exposed to hard rock. And then I started to realize that this was the reef and it had been completely buried and blanketed in sediment and smothered. Um, and I swam as far as I could and I saw no end in sight to the extent of the damage. So to your question, you know, how far did it go? It was supposed to be just a temporary and insignificant impact within... 150 meters from the shipping channel. We know that the impacts went out to a thousand meters from the channel, um, if not more. And in Puerto Rico, there are corals in critical habitat um, within that thousand meters, about 450 meters um, away and 700 and, and so meters away, respectively. So those corals in that critical habitat in Puerto Rico, we know from what happened in Miami, are in in the direct risk area for being smothered. And longtime listeners of this program will know that we followed a, a condition that's now called stony coral tissue loss disease. We've been reporting on that since 2016. And uh, it's thought that the origin of this disease came from that dredging project in Miami about a decade ago. What do we know about that? And you might be frozen up, uh, Dr. Silverstein. I didn't hear the whole question, but I turned off my video to see if, if that's better. But It is. So um, the, the connection between stony coral tissue loss disease, a, a devastating disease, and the dredging at Port Miami. Mm-hmm. So that's an excellent question. And um, this disease has killed tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions of corals throughout the Florida reef tract and now throughout the whole Caribbean. There is more and more evidence that this disease may have started at the port of Miami during the dredging and may have actually been accelerated by the dredging uh, at the port of Miami. 
Um, and if this is true, um, which we don't know conclusively for sure yet, um, which I think it's important to note, that would be absolutely game changing when considering the potential impacts of dredging projects because they have potentially created local extinctions even of certain species of coral. Um, so some of the evidence is, for example, um, a study from NOAA came out that they put healthy corals and diseased corals in the same tank. It took about two weeks for the healthy corals to get the disease. Um, when they did the same thing with sediment in the tank, it took about 24 hours for the coral So it seems to be some kind of a vector that's really speeding up infection um, when there's sediment present. Uh, we also have had studies come out showing that the only connection in certain disease areas is how much exposure to dredging sediment falls have had, and that's actually, that's actually from other types of diseases in places like Australia. So more and more we're realizing that there may be um, connections between the dredging causing you know, a lot of immune-compromised corals in one area. This disease potentially existed in the environment um, at very low levels, but then it hit millions of immune-compromised corals that had been impacted by the dredging because of the dredging sediment. They were weak. They had, you know, little wounds on their tissue that allowed bacteria or viruses in and really helped spread this disease and turn it into an epidemic um, that then took off like wildfire. So the prevailing theory is that potentially the dredging served as sort of a spark to set off this disease. Um, But again, research is ongoing. We don't know for sure, but if that connection can be proven, that would be really game-changing in how we think about these local impacts having potentially global effects on these ecosystems. And I think it is something that all dredging projects really need to be considering that is not part of the, the current analysis for the dredging at San Juan. There's no disease monitoring being required or anything at all like that. And so we think that that's a big deficiency as well. In fact, there's no monitoring of health, health of coral monitoring at all in this dredge project. So it's almost like it's if they, we won't know necessarily if the dredge goes ahead, we won't necessarily know whether the, the, there is impacts from this dredging project on the corals and coral reefs. That's absolutely correct. So they're taking estimates of 150 meters again, um, even though we've proven that that's not accurate. And then they're saying, oh, because the corals are beyond this 150 meter area, they're they're fine. And they're not even requiring monitoring to make sure that those estimates are correct. And based on what we've seen, we're pretty sure that they're not correct, but we'll never know because currently they're not requiring monitoring. So one of the big asks is you know, to revise that estimate to truly Um, encompass the area of impact that's really likely from dredging projects and their impacts on coral reefs, and then to monitor closely so that we understand the health of corals, um, how much uh, risk they are um, under, and how much sedimentation they're actually experiencing during the project, as well as things like disease that could be going on. You know, I want to take this interesting tidbit from the the filing that you did with the court. And you said that the Army Corps of Engineers analyses were written by someone who pled guilty to making false statements to law enforcement agents. What is that all about? So when the Port of Miami dredging project was underway, um, their chief biologist, um, a woman named Terry uh, Jordan Sellers, was um, working on um, the Port Miami projects as well as Port Everglades. Um, and I believe San Juan as well. Um, and she was indicted by um, the Department of Justice for lying to federal agents about having taken money from um, an environmental monitoring firm on a major South Florida dredging project. 
Wow. Uh, so uh, pretty interesting stuff. So in the last se- few seconds we have, is there anything else that we haven't gotten to that you want to talk about when it comes to the idea of dredging this port near coral reefs in San Juan? Yeah, I think um, we're really asking for lessons to be learned and incorporated. These are the same agencies that made these mistakes in um, in Miami. They have revised a lot of the, these documents because of a lawsuit we filed for Port Everglades, which is in Fort Lauderdale, just 30 miles north of Port Miami. And why update and incorporate all of these lessons learned for that project and not San Juan? So San Juan's currently being treated differently. It's being left out and its corals are not being protected. It's using outdated science, faulty analyses, and there's just a complete failure to live up to the standards that the United States has set for protecting corals um, and their habitats, as well as the community and the ecosystem, frankly, around these major dredging projects. So we're just asking that the law be followed here. Well, I want to thank you so much for coming on WMF's Tuesday Cafe, Rachel and Jacqueline. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. Stetson University College of Law Professor Jacqueline Lopez is the director of Stetson's Jacobs Law Clinic. And Rachel Silverstein, PhD, is the executive director and waterkeeper of Miami Waterkeeper. And I'd also like to thank our earlier guest, the suspended Hillsborough County State Attorney Andrew Warren. If you missed either of these interviews, you can watch them on our website, WMNF.org. And you've been listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canaan, News and Public Affairs Director at WMNF Tampa. During this time slot tomorrow, Shelly Reback will host Midpoint. Next up is Wavemakers with Janet and Tom Sherberger. And I want to thank everyone who supported Tuesday Cafe during our recent fund drive. If you'd like the information that you get here, you can help us to make that goal with your donation at WMNF.org. This has been Tuesday Cafe coming to you from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. We're also broadcasting to St. Petersburg, Sarasota, Lakeland, and beyond. Thanks so much for listening to Tuesday Cafe and WMNF. WMNF Tampa and WMNF.org. Stay tuned for Wavemakers coming up right after NPR News, followed by Alternative Radio, and then we have Harrison Nash coming up with some more music. A little Dick Dale to take us into NPR News.